John, would you mind opening us in prayer and, uh, and we'll begin. All right. Thank you, Father, for our time together today, for our new study that we're going to have in the book of Daniel, and uh, that you would uh, give us the ability, Father, to understand and uh, to be able to realize uh, what's really going on uh, as Michael gives us the study. Uh, the names are difficult, uh, but uh, Father, uh, it's, it's a book, obviously, of your choosing. And that's why Daniel's in it, and we're anxious to understand it today. We just ask for everybody's uh, uh, goodwill and, and joy and safety. Uh, Father, and thankful that we're able to uh, to be here today to listen to to uh, Pastor Mike in the study of Daniel. Thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And we want to thank you guys for allowing us the um, the time away that we took over our holiday season, and uh, we really appreciate it. Um, we had a great time with our kids, um, and uh, God was good. We had uh, no problems traveling. Uh, back and forth to the East Coast twice, and um, so thank you for your prayers and but allowing us to have that time. Um, as we've said, we 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 just really feel like it's an important time in our lives and our kids' lives to stay connected physically as well as Facebook or whatever, not Facebook, but FaceTime, and. Uh, so we, we've just had uh, some great times with just the four of us together, or the three of us and Harley, Heather's uh, puppy. Yes. They're a pair. All right. <laughs> let's, just, <laughs> let's get going. Uh, and thank you, by the way, for your suggestion that we, uh, we look at the book of Daniel. Uh, this is going to be a, a trip. This is, this is going to be fun. <laughs> and... Uh, it's just I mean, it's, it's, a trip. A trip in our generation was not a good thing. Well, so a good trip. You gotta, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. There uh, as and and today will be somewhat of a shortish uh, introduction to Daniel, and then next week we'll uh, we'll we'll jump in verse by verse and and get going. Uh, you know, there's there's many ways that we can approach uh, this study. And what I wanted to do is, even before we set the historical context, I want to read, we'll read the, the first one or two verses um, and, and let it open the door to the, the incredible history, the, uh, the adventure, uh, the eschatological uh, wonder of the writings of this amazing man named Daniel. So let me read the opening passage, uh, let God launch us on this journey together, and then, and then we'll back up and look at the context and the historical setting, which is very fascinating in and of itself. So <clears throat> I'm going to read here from the New Living Translation. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. 
So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. The word them there refers to uh, the treasures out of the temple of God. Uh, he, he stole many of those and put them in his own temple to his, his own God. Before we go on, and this is why I saved the historical context for a couple of minutes now, there is an amazing truth, um, an eternal principle about God in the first two verses here. And I just, it, it hit me between the eyes when I was reading it uh, last night. And that is that God allows scoundrels to help accomplish his will, <laughs> you know? And if you, <coughs> excuse me, if you think about your life, thinking about my life, there, there have been very strange folk in my life that God has used to accomplish his will. And sometimes we don't think about that because we just look on the outside and we say, well, you know, who are they? But God has a plan for them and a plan for the kingdom. And in his amazing sovereignty, and this is this goes along with why God allows bad things to happen. And of course, that goes to the Garden of Eden and such, but he he allows weird people to be intimately involved in the accomplishment of his will. And so I want to let that sink in because uh, especially as we look at the world surrounding us today, a lot of things seem topsy-turvy. You look at the cancel culture and, and the violence and, and, and a lot of these things. And remember that God is still sovereign. And Dr. Michael Wright, by the way, those of you who know Dr. Michael Wright uh, may remember that his uh, wife, Sue, uh, went to heaven on January 2nd. There was a beautiful uh, celebration of life last Tuesday in her honor. But anyway, he, uh, uh, he often says, when you see conflict, when you see things upside down, always look for God and what he's doing in the midst of that. And that involves getting on our knees. Uh, I found, and, and maybe you do, I don't. I don't have the immediate capacity to look at chaos and be able to see God in the midst of it. I have to stop, <clears throat> get on my knees, and pray that God will show me this situation with his eyes. Not with mine, because mine are faulty. All of us have uh, filters based upon our lives and our experiences, our hurts, our joys, all of that fits into it. But to, uh, to stop and say, okay, God, please let me see this situation. Please let me see this person, whatever it might be, through your eyes so that I can see what you're doing and then join you in that particular, uh, that particular process. So uh, that that uh, that I see in these first two oh, yeah, verses. So my my encouragement to all of us, <clears throat> as we reflect on verses one and two, is to approach these circumstances. Oh, good. To approach these. Hang on. To approach these circumstances 
trying to see God's eyes in the pro- trying to see them through God's eyes in the process. So let me read these first two verses again, let them sink in, and then we're going to go into the historical context of what we have here. Here it is again. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them, meaning those treasures, back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. So with that that prologue there, let's set the historical stage uh, for our study of the book of Daniel. First of all, who wrote Daniel? Well, the book of Daniel was written by Daniel himself. And while there's some competing theories about exactly when it was written, uh, I side with the Dallas Theological Seminary scholars and with J. Dwight Pentecost, setting the date of Daniel's authorship uh, sometime in the 6th century B.C. Now, how do we know? How do we know that Daniel wrote the book? Well, for one reason is Jesus referred to the fact that Daniel wrote it himself. Uh, go back to uh, Matthew 24, 15, and, and Christ was referring back to Daniel and the book. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judah must flee to the hills. Now, what does that mean exactly when we say, well, he wrote it in the 6th century B.C.? What Can we narrow that down a little bit? Well, the, that century extends from 600 B.C., counting down to 501 B.C. And uh, how do we know, or what's the evidence, that Daniel wrote it sometimes during that time? Well, that evidence is right in the the first two verses that we wrote, that we read here in in Daniel uh, chapter 1, when King Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem. So let's step back again and put this in full context of Israel and the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Uh, Now I'm going to put a uh, uh, a chart up here on the screen. Uh, Some of you uh, may have it. Some of you may have it on email, some of you uh, not, but I'm going to put it on the screen. If you don't have it, and John, I'm going to to mail uh, these handouts to you this week so that that you have them for next week. Uh, But let me put this up on the screen. Uh, These are the kings of uh, Israel and Judah. Now, and this starts with Saul right? The first king back in 1050. Remember, 120 years, uh, the United Kingdom of Israel was ruled by Saul and then David and then uh, his son Solomon from 1050 BC to 930 BC when, when Solomon died. So our text here, our historical context happens way down here at the bottom of this chart, uh, if you can see it. Uh, Down at the very, very bottom, uh, you see 
Jehoiakim as uh, number three, uh, reigned uh, 11 years. And <clears throat> notice in uh, verses one and two that it tells us exactly when this occurred. All right, so remember with the death in Solomon of Solomon in 930 BC, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, mostly due to physical strife. The northern kingdom was the kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And that divided kingdom lasted about 207 years. If you remember in review, the northern kingdom consisted of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was headquartered in Samaria, and it suffered in, in very poor leadership, under poor leadership, from a succession of 20 kings who went from bad to badder, <laughs> I guess you could say, from Jeroboam I through Hosea, uh, who assassinated the king before him to gain his throne. Now, the, su the southern kingdom was a, a little bit more stable, consisting of only two tribes. Remember, the northern kingdom had 10 tribes. The southern kingdom had two tribes, consisting of the tribes of Judah and the tribes of Benjamin, headquartered in, of course, Jerusalem. So the southern kingdom, or Judah, saw a succession of 20 kings, uh, but Judah, Judah's kings generally were <clears throat> a better mix of, of great, a couple of not so great, but also included some of the uh, greatest kings like Hezekiah and uh, the boy King Josiah. All right, so back to the northern kingdom of Israel in the year 734 during the reign of Hosea. The northern kingdom, as you remember, was attacked by the Assyrians. And the Syrians began taking the Israelites captive in the north and exiling them to live in Assyria. That assault and chipping away at the northern kingdom lasted for about seven years. So beginning in 734 B.C. to about 723 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was completely sacked by the Assyrians and the rest of the northern kingdom was forced to live in Assyria. So these 10 tribes, that's why they were called, of the northern tribes, that's why they were called the, the lost tribes, because Israel pretty much in the northern kingdom disappeared off the map, and they were never allowed to return to Jerusalem. But the southern kingdom that we're going to look at right now of Judah, the tribes of Judah and the tribes of Benjamin, fared a, a lot better. And they remained in the capital of Jerusalem for 137 years after the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, fell. But Judah was uh, destined for its own judgment as well. In uh, 597 B.C., Jerusalem falls at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he's going to play a major part in this book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar goes and he captures Judah's king, Jehoiakim, and he takes him as a prisoner to Babylon. Zedekiah then is set up as a puppet king under Nebuchadnezzar, and he rules the southern kingdom for about 10 years. And then finally in 586 B.C., remember the first assault is in 597 B.C., 
by, um, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And then in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar finishes off Jerusalem, completely destroys the city, burns the temple. King Zedekiah, this puppet king that Nebuchadnezzar has set up, was blinded, and he was taken along with the rest of the people of Judah to Babylon. So the people of the southern kingdom of Judah lived in what we call the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. All right, now let's see if we can narrow down this exact date of the opening of the two verses of the book of Daniel. Again, here it is. <clears throat> During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. All right, so let's look at our chart here real quick. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Let me see if I can, if you're looking at your screen, let me see if I can zoom in here just a little bit. Hang on. Okay, do you see uh, number three, Jehoiakim there? Reigned 11 years from 609 to 598 B.C. So <clears throat> the ver first uh, verse tells us it was during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So when did Jehoiakim start reigning? We say there he started reigning in... 609 BC. <clears throat> so if you take three years from 609, what are you left with? 606. Yeah, so about 606 BC is the historical context of the opening of the book of Daniel that we see right here. That's when Nebuchadnezzar comes to the, again, the, the southern kingdom of Judah and he's on the attack, and he'll, uh, he'll come back uh, after 605 B.C. He'll come back in 586 B.C., and that's when everyone in, uh, in the southern kingdom is taken captive for the 70 years. All right, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, I'll bring that off the screen, and by the way, if you have not received a copy of that, you'd like it, uh, message me, and I'll be happy to, to send a copy to you if, you if you would like it. Let's look at this character, Nebuchadnezzar, for a couple of minutes, because he plays such a, a main role here. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, as we enter the book of Daniel here, he's been very busy defeating armies and expanding his uh, empire. In uh, 605 B.C., he, uh, he attacked and defeated Egypt, and in the pursuit of, of flee, these fleeing Egyptians took territory south into Syria and west into Jerusalem. I'm going to put up an, uh, another map here, if you don't mind, to, to give us some context of this. Okay. Uh, you see the map there, I hope? Yep. Okay, look at the top, Nineveh, remember ancient Nineveh and, and, and Jonah being sent to Nineveh and all of that? Nineveh was located 
in let me uh i know it, it gets a little blurry there in where modern day mosul is in iraq oh. okay so nineveh was in the northern part of iraq and babylon as you see is toward the uh southern central part of iraq uh babylon of course, no longer existing. It, it will, as we remember from our studies in Revelation, it's going to uh, be revived, but it's not there right now. Uh, Babylon is is uh, a little bit southwest of Baghdad. You you see it right there in red, and it is uh, Babylon uh, located near the Euphrates River, while Baghdad is uh, near the Tiger Tigris River. Baghdad, of course, is where uh, John Engel infamously refers to the bad dude from Baghdad. That's, uh, that's where he's from right there. So uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is down in, in Babylon here, and he travels northward in what is modern-day Iraq up to uh, Mosul or what was Nineveh then, and he starts uh, taking over all of these uh, all of these territories to build an empire for himself. All right, I'm going to throw up another mat uh, right here, and this gives us kind of a, a broader perspective of what we're talking about. Uh, this is uh, the the uh, the Middle East, and uh, I hope you're seeing that map right now. Let me uh -huh. uh, zoom in just a little bit. All right, we see where uh, Babylon is right here, right, in the south-central portion of Iraq. Mosul is up there near the uh, northern tip of uh, Iraq. That's where Nineveh was. And then Jerusalem is, remember, way over here in, in Israel. So what happened was that as Nebuchadnezzar is traveling northward from Babylon, he starts taking over all these territories. He works himself uh, down. He, um, he actually goes into Egypt, and uh, he, he causes the people from Egypt to flee. And while he's conquering Egypt, he goes back up north to, uh, uh, to Palestine and to Israel, and he sacks Jerusalem as well. So at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, he's on a roll, and uh, he is uh, building an amazing, uh, amazing empire for us. All right, do you need that map up anymore? Everybody got their, their bearings on that okay? Yep. Okay. All right, I'll take that, uh, take that back down. And again, if, if you'd like copies of any of that, uh, please let me know. So okay, let's, so I'm uh, heading out. You guys take care. I'm going to go ahead okay. with my All right, okay. thank you. Blessings. Okay. God right. bless. Bye. Bye-bye. So now we turn to the book of Daniel itself and how Daniel constructs it. And there's uh, a very intentional construction uh, here, and we're going to see that in a little bit, and, and we'll, uh, we'll probably close that out for today, and, and we'll get into the, uh, the actual verse-by-verse -verse study next week. In the Hebrew scriptures, <clears throat> of which Daniel is a part, obviously, there are three main divisions, and they're different than the order of our canon and our books of the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is divided into, into three main sections, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, 
and the writings, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. What does that mean? What's involved in each? Well, the first section, the law of Moses, uh, we call it the Pentateuch, the first five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Remember how we memorize the Bible? We got those first five anyway. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law of Moses. The second section of the Old Testament for the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, are the prophets. It's called the prophets. The prophets include Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel are one book. First and Second Kings are one book in the Hebrew Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then one book that contains the 12 minor prophets. Right, who are they? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. All right, so you have uh, the, the main prophets there, the major prophets that we call them, also the minor prophets as well. Who's not in there that I just mentioned? Psalms. Daniel. Proverbs. Oh, Daniel. Right. Da uh, yeah, you're, you're right, uh, Lori. But in terms of people, Daniel's not in there. And yet he had a great prophetic voice. Interesting that in the Hebrew Bible, he is included in the third section called the writings. And remember that Daniel wrote uh, this book himself. The writings uh, contain actually 12 books, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, uh, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, our book here, Ezra, Nehemiah, and uh, First and Second Chronicles are actually one book in the Hebrew uh, Bible. So Daniel is included in the writings in this third particular section. Again, he's not included among the major or the minor prophets because God did not really use Daniel to prophetically speak to the nation of Israel. And we're going to find out why, uh, because God had a different assignment for Daniel. So although he had a prophetic voice, it wasn't necessarily aimed at Israel herself, uh, but at uh, some historical and obviously end times uh, prophecies. So here is Daniel, and he's in this, uh, this kind of isolated as a, as a prophet in this uh, third section called the, um, uh, the Writings. Don't have a lot of detail about Daniel as a person, other than he was born into a royal family in Judah. And as we'll see in verse 3 and beyond, uh, he was apparently a very handsome young man with a great intellect. Uh, this is, you know, this is one of those uh, just, just bright, good-looking young guys that was destined to be a leader. And uh, so from the very uh, start, God gifted him in very powerful ways to be a leader, uh, both in terms of his physical appearance, his charisma, uh, but also in terms of his intellect and his deep devotion to God. 
Now, how old was uh, was Daniel in uh, 606 when Nebuchadnezzar raided Judah and Jerusalem and took Daniel captive? Don't exactly know, but we can probably say he was in his mid to late teens. Uh, let's let's just say 16 years of age, probably. Uh, uh, as you consider the training that uh, young men received as as Hebrew boys, as Jewish boys, and he had passed that major 15-year-old landmark. He's now a man at at 16 probably about 16 years old. And, uh, and he lived through the Babylonian captivity, uh, which would make him, remember when Cyrus came and, and liberated everyone in, in 536 BC, it would have meant that Daniel was taken captive at about age 16, probably. And he was liberated with everyone else in 536 BC, which would have made him about 86 years old. So he lived all of his adult life, essentially, in captivity. And yet, as we're going to see, God used him in such a, a powerful way uh, to speak to, uh, to his world. The, the book itself, is, as we kind of wrap this up for, for today, the book itself is interesting in terms of its focus and its language. And watch for this change in focus as we move through Daniel. The, the book of Daniel is, is first an apocalyptic book. Uh, it's a book dealing with eschatology or the end times. The other <laughs> books, of course, that deal with the end times, we see a, a bit of it in Ezekiel. We see a little bit of it in, uh, in Zechariah. And, and then, of course, we see all of it pretty much in, in Revelation that we just studied. So the book of Daniel has two major themes or em emphasis emphases. One is God's plan for the Gentile nations in chapters 2 through 7. Watch for that tone. Watch for that theme as we move through Daniel in the first seven chapters. Uh, the first part of the book, God's plan for the Gentile nations. That means those nations that are not Jewish, including uh, the pagans, the Babylonians that have taken them captive. God is going to use Daniel to speak into that culture in a very powerful and a very uh, 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 clear way. And then secondly, in chapters 8 through 12, the theme here is going to be how the Gentile nations are going to have an effect upon Israel. Isn't that interesting? So the first seven chapters is about the Gentile nations and their relationship with Israel. The second half of the book from chapters 8 through 12 deals with how the Gentile nations are going to affect the Hebrew, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, as they uh, begin to be prepared to be released by King Cyrus in, uh, in 536 BC. And if you remember your, your history, I don't know that we covered it here as much as, as in the morning church, but when 
the kept when, when Cyrus frees the the people of Judah re, to return to Jerusalem. Again, none of the tri ten tribes of the northern tribe of Israel really got to return, but those two tribes of, of Judah and Benjamin, as as uh, as they return, uh, God has some specific missions for them. There is a plan for them, and part of those plans. Uh, are going to be articulated by Daniel while they are in captivity. So it's going to be an interesting uh, journey that we have through the book. Uh, there's also, and you're not going to see this because unless you're really cool and I'm not, and you're reading the text here in Hebrew and or uh, Greek, uh, you won't see it because you're reading it in English. But here's the deal. Chapters two through seven, because they were aimed at the Gentiles to talk about their relationship with Israel, with uh, Israel taken captive, the first seven chapters of Daniel are written in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. Now, Aramaic at the time uh, would, would be considered the... Um, Oh, the English of their time. In other words, it, it's, it would be the, the language of the Gentile world. Uh, Aramaic would be what you would speak if you were having uh, business dealings with foreign nations and such. It was the language of, of commerce for the time. So interesting that the first uh, seven chapters, uh, at least uh, uh, mostly chapter one and definitely verses two through seven are written in Aramaic because Daniel and God wanted the Gentiles who spoke Aramaic, Aramaic and read Aramaic, they wanted them to read these uh, prophecies and these lessons from Daniel. The second part, however, is aimed at Israel or Judah, rather, at that point. So chapters eight through 12 uh, have... Uh, describe the effect for Israel on how the Gentile nations are forming Israel's future. And so they are written in Hebrew. So the first part, uh, the first half of Daniel is aimed at Gentiles, therefore it's written in Aramaic. The second part of Daniel is aimed at the Jewish people and is written in Hebrew because that is the, uh, that is the, uh, the target audience. All right, so that lays the, the foundation for our study of, of Daniel historically. And uh, again, if, if you would like copies of uh, the Kings of Israel and Judah and any of those maps, uh, just, uh, you know, email, text, throw a rock at me, carrier pigeon, you know, whatever you want to do, let me know. And I'll, I'll make you, <laughs> I'll make sure that, uh, that you get copies of that. Okay. Any questions uh, about the historical context of the book of Daniel? So what you're saying is when you say the Hebrew Bible, you're talking the Torah, correct? Yeah. And, and remember that there are two versions of the Torah. There is an oral version and there is a written version. And the two are not always quite the same. What we're dealing here, you're correct, is with the written Torah. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the books of the Hebrew uh, Bible, and again, divided into those three categories. 
that, that we talked about a, a couple of minutes, minutes ago, the law of Moses, and then the prophets, and then the writings, uh, which contain a lot of the uh, poetry books, but also contains this powerful uh, book of Daniel as, as well. Uh, so yeah, it contains the Torah, uh, the first five books, the Pentateuch, and then, um, and then the prophets, and, and, and then the writings. Correct. Mike, it sounds like Dave is with me and the history is really nice. Uh, I think it's going to be a real interesting lesson. Yes, it's, it's going to be extraordinary. Uh, I'm very excited. You know, I, I remember back when first one of you said, let's do Daniel. And I'm me. going, oh boy. You're oh, a boy. oh, was it you? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm so glad you said that because this is going to be an amazing journey this oh, book it's, it's is so interesting already and he has all those dreams <laughs> mm -hmm. well and, and you know we get to revisit shadrach meshach and abednego and uh <laughs> daniel in the lion's den and and uh it, it's and, and we're, we get to put it now we we get to lift it out of some sort of vague well i don't know was that mythology or was it history we we now can yes look at it as history and place it in its historical context so you know again we begin about 606 bc with nebuchadnezzar sacking jerusalem taking daniel captive now remember not everyone in judah was taken captive at that time i think the reason and i'm just this is my prognostication I believe that probably Nebuchadnezzar grabbed Daniel because he was a royal family. And so what Nebuchadnezzar was doing was he was taking the royal leaders captive first. And Nebuchadnezzar was a, a piece of work. And, 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 and in the end, of course, we see him as having a severe mental illness. However, there, there are a lot of people throughout human history who were brilliant, great generals, great warriors, great rulers, great creative geniuses who were mentally ill. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is one of them. Uh -huh. uh, but, and again, this is, this is the interesting thing, just looking at those first two verses, verses one and two, God used this corrupt, despicable, Nebuchadnezzar, who was feared and, and wound up really going, going crazy, God used him for his purposes to give Daniel a voice into the Gentile and the Hebrew or the Is Israelite world. And so without Nebuchadnezzar, we wouldn't have this situation with Daniel. And what it speaks to, to me, and I have to with with stuff that happens today, I have to remember to stop and really ask God, let me see this situation through your eyes. Where are you working and how do you want to work in me and through me in this particular situation? And it's interesting to look at where God is working. You wouldn't think if you were back in 606 BC in Jerusalem, and here comes battle king uh, general Nebuchadnezzar, and he comes in and he 
he sacks the temple of God and he takes stuff away and he takes uh, this, this brilliant young 16-year-old man of the royal family, Daniel, he takes him away as well. You would think it's all over, it's done. And yet God is going to be using this despicable Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his will and to give Daniel really, uh, at least in the Middle East, a, a worldwide platform for uh, not only affecting history, but speaking into the end times as well. And, and so, so are you saying, Mike, that his actions, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's actions were destined by God? I'm sorry, can you repeat that, Lee? Uh, are you saying that Nebuchadnezzar's actions are, are destined by God? Yes. Yeah, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar in his confused, mixed-up world uh, to do what he did because uh, God's design was to use him to give Daniel a platform to speak to both the Gentile and the Hebrew world. Okay. And that's what's so interesting about human history is God is not surprised by the valleys. He's not surprised by the gross things that happen. He is always at work. He is sovereign in everything. And so no matter what's happening, he is working in and through his people to accomplish his will and to build his kingdom. And, and that's what's so fascinating to look back at Daniel is we can look at our own lives uh, in, in past, present, and probably in the future and say, how was God working through that? I, I can look back at my own life and look at some very painful times and say, you know what, God was honing me there, or I can see how he was working through that incident. Uh, right now, I have to work at that. I have to say, okay, God, you know, through all the violence and the destruction and, 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 and the hate and all of that, the, the cancel culture that we see right now, let me see this through your eyes. I want to see where you are working so that I can empty myself of me and allow you to work through me to accomplish your will in this time. And, the, and, and it may not strike you that way, and that's perfectly fine. It struck me that way, reading those two verses. It just became, they, they spoke to me in a very powerful way that I need to be careful uh, not to dismiss what's happening around me too easily, but rather seek God's face and find out what he's doing in the situation. Well, let me know when you find out. important for me, how he wants me to respond so that he can work in me and through me in the in the context of whatever it might be. That was a really long answer to a short question. I'm sorry, but and it's, really, it's heavy, Mike. It's really heavy. Yeah, it is heavy. Pastor and? Mike. Okay, I opened up my Wearsby's book. I had to buy yes. one because I didn't have one for Daniel. Um, but um, it's interesting. He says the same thing about the first two verses. <laughs> Really? Yeah. But here's one I, place I underline. God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living, living like pagans in the holy land and disgracing his name. Mm. And uh, then back to such as Lee was mentioning, um, 
so wise and powerful is our God that he can permit men and women to make personal choices and still accomplish his purposes in the world. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I, I, I have to trust whatever is happening. God is in control. I know God is in control. So whatever's happening isn't like, I, I know people are worried that this is the end of the world. <laughs> but I, I trust God is going to use whatever is going on. Um, and he already knows what's going on. So I, I don't think he's yet turned his back on us and said, you're on your own now. So I trust that he will accomplish what he plans on accomplishing through these times. And, you know, I always think back to Judah. I mean, there had to be somebody to come along (laughs) and offer this guy 30 pieces of silver, have Jesus crucified so he could be, he could raise again so I could be saved. So he had to use somebody that wasn't very nice. (laughs) Yes. So I just think, uh, I mean, if everybody was on Jesus' side, I don't know. Well, we'd be in heaven. We had, you know, he knows ahead of time. So um, I, I've been in, uh, lots of times encouraged that uh, God can accomplish His will, even in my life, if I go out and make some stupid mistake. So I think that if this world country city town makes a mistake that god can you know that's what he does he redeems yeah yeah uh, i was very blessed by you saying it and where's we saying it two people saying those same things well i'm i'm glad i'm in decent company then (laughs) yes (laughs) he's in decent company (laughs) and i just wanted to say your explanation really clarified that. I appreciate it because you said uh, even though all these things are happening uh, that men have chosen to do, God works his purpose through it. Yeah, yes. I like that explanation. Well, it's, it pretty much goes back to Romans eight twenty eight. Yes. I mean, um, that's one of the places where I probably learned it and st- when I studied, you know, in depth to it, that... Uh, Otherwise, we would all be in big mess. I mean, yeah. I'm just as bad as the next person. So, so I'm very, I, you know, my pastor this morning mentioned uh, bumping into Jesus is how he words it, <laughs> is uh, if you see Jesus working. And um, I even think of it, even in the mess that's going on now, I just know God isn't just standing back, you know, sitting back on a high mountain in his glorious place saying, oh, those people, oh, those people. He's just not doing that. Yeah. Uh, Not my God. Somebody else's God might, but my God doesn't do that. (laughs) Well, and and Anne, um, that brings up another point, I think, that we have to be careful of. Oftentimes when negative things happen, a lot of believers tend to think God's punishing me. Yeah. 
or us, if it's a, a, a group, not necessarily. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, God often had punishment for the nation of Israel because she intentionally disobeyed him and, and strayed from him and worshiped foreign gods. And there were, op, uh, there were punishments, but every single time God allowed a punishment, there was always a way back. There yes. Was always, God always provided a way back. Yeah. And, and, and that fits into this as well. I, I think, you know, I, I have, uh, what do I want to say? Some frustration with believers who only see the punishment side of it. Yeah. Because what they're missing is maybe it's not, maybe God is allowing whatever it is because he wants to grow us. We don't grow a lot when we're tiptoeing through the tulips. <laughs> That's right. Right? Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're fine and dandy and fat, dumb and happy and, you yeah. know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we're, you know, we're singing along and, and, uh, you know, Valerie, Valera and everything's great. Uh, well, I think sometimes God allows yeah. bad stuff to happen to us so that he grabs our attention and we learn. I, I think, and, and this may just be me, I think some of the greatest lessons I've learned in my life have been learned in the context of pain, suffering, and or tough times. Mm -hmm. Because that's when we draw near to God and yeah. we learn, we learn. So uh, anyway, it was something that you said uh, kind of triggered. Well, you know, in James, that. James says, you know, if you persevere through the hard times, that's when you'll mature. And he wants us to be mature Christians, not babies crawling around, not knowing. Yeah. Good, good, good point. Yeah. Excellent. 